This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer yourself, please visit LibriVox.org. Today's reading by Alex Foster, www.alexfoster.me.uk Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 18 In which Phileas Fogg, Passepartout, and Fix go each about his business. The weather was bad during the latter days of the voyage. The wind, obstinately remaining in the northwest, blew a gale and retarded the steamer. The Rangoon rolled heavily, and the passengers became impatient of the long, monstrous waves which the wind raised before their path. A sort of tempest arose on the 3rd of November, the squall knocking the vessel about with fury and the waves running high. The Rangoon reefed all her sails, and even the rigging proved too much whistling and shaking amid the squall. The steamer was forced to proceed slowly, and the captain estimated that she would reach Hong Kong twenty hours behind time, and more if the storm lasted. Phileas Fogg gazed at the tempestuous sea, which seemed to be struggling especially to delay him with his habitual tranquillity. He never changed countenance for an instant, though a delay of twenty hours by making him too late for the Yokohama boat would almost inevitably cause the loss of the wager. But this man of nerve manifested neither impatience nor annoyance. It seemed as if the storm were a part of his programme, and had been foreseen. Aouda was amazed to find him as calm as he had been from the first time she saw him. Fix did not look at the state of things in the same light. The storm greatly pleased him. His satisfaction would have been complete had the Rangoon been forced to retreat before the violence of wind and waves. Each delay filled him with hope for it became more and more probable that Fogg would be obliged to remain some days at Hong Kong, and now the heavens themselves became his allies with the gusts and squalls. It mattered not that they made him seasick, he made no account of this inconvenience, and whilst his body was writhing under their effects, his spirit bounded with hopeful exultation. Passepartout was enraged beyond expression by the unpropitious weather. Everything had done so well till now— Earth and sea had seemed to be at his master's service, steamers and railways obeyed him, wind and steam united to speed his journey. Had the hour of adversity come? Passepartout was as much excited as if the twenty thousand pounds were to come from his own pocket. The storm exasperated him, the gale made him furious, and he longed to lash the obstinate sea into obedience. Poor fellow! Fix carefully concealed from him his own satisfaction, for, had he betrayed it, Passepartout could scarcely have restrained himself from personal violence. Passepartout remained on deck as long as the tempest lasted, being unable to remain quiet below, and taking it into his head to aid the progress of the ship by lending a hand with the crew. He overwhelmed the captain, officers and sailors, who could not help laughing at his impatience with all sorts of questions. He wanted to know exactly how long the storm was going to last, whereupon he was referred to the barometer, which seemed to have no intention of rising. Passepartout shook it, but with no perceptible effect, for neither shaking nor maledictions could prevail upon it to change its mind. On the fourth, however, the sea became more calm, and the storm lessened its violence. The wind veered southward and was once more favourable. Passepartout cleared up with the weather. Some of the sails were unfurled, and the Rangoon resumed its most rapid speed. The time lost could not, however, be regained. Land was not signalled until five o'clock on the morning of the sixth. The steamer was due on the fifth. Phileas Fogg was twenty-four hours behindhand, and the Yokohama steamer would, of course, be missed.
The pilot went on board at six and took his place on the bridge, to guide the Rangoon through the channels to the port of Hong Kong. Passepartout longed to ask him if the steamer had left for Yokohama, but he dared not, for he wished to preserve the spark of hope, which he still remained till the last moment. He had confided his anxiety to Fix, who, the sly rascal, tried to console him by saying that Mr. Fogg would be in time if he took the next boat. But this only put Passepartout in a passion. Mr. Fogg, bolder than his servant, did not hesitate to approach the pilot, and tranquilly asked him if he knew when a steamer would leave Hong Kong for Yokohama. "'At high tide to-morrow morning,' answered the pilot. "'Ah,' said Mr. Fogg, without betraying any astonishment. Passepartout, who heard what had passed, would willingly have embraced the pilot, while Fix would have been glad to twist his neck. "'What is the steamer's name?' asked Mr. Fogg. "'The Carnatic.' "'Ought she not to have gone yesterday?' "'Yes, sir, but they had to repair one of her boilers, and so her departure was postponed until to-morrow.' "'Thank you,' returned Mr. Fogg, descending mathematically to the saloon. Passepartout clasped the pilot's hand and shook it heartily in his delight, exclaiming, "'Pilot, you are the best of good fellows!' The pilot probably does not know to this day why his responses won him this enthusiastic greeting. He remounted the bridge, and guided the steamer through the flotilla of junks, tankers, and fishing-boats which crowd the harbour of Hong Kong. At one o'clock the Rangoon was at the quay, and the passengers were going ashore. Chance had strangely favoured Phileas Fogg, for had not the Carnatic been forced to lie over for repairing her boilers, she would have left on the 6th of November, and the passengers for Japan would have been obliged to wait for a week for the sailing of the next steamer. Mr. Fogg was, it was true, twenty-four hours behind his time, but this could not seriously imperil the remainder of his tour. The steamer which crossed the Pacific from Yokohama to San Francisco made a direct connection with that from Hong Kong, and it could not sail until the latter reached Yokohama, and if Mr. Fogg was twenty-four hours late on reaching Yokohama, this time would no doubt be easily regained in the voyage of twenty-two days across the Pacific. He found himself then about twenty-four hours behindhand, thirty-five days after leaving London. The Carnatic was announced to leave Hong Kong at five the next morning. Mr. Fogg had sixteen hours in which to attend to his business there, which was to deposit Aouda safely with her wealthy relative. On landing he conducted her to a palanquin, in which they repaired to the club hotel. A room was engaged for the young woman, and Mr. Fogg, after seeing that she wanted for nothing, set out in search of her cousin Gigi. He instructed Passepartout to remain at the hotel until his return, that Aouda might not be left entirely alone. Mr. Fogg repaired to the exchange, where, he did not doubt, everyone would know so wealthy and considerable a personage as the Parsee merchant. Meeting a broker, he made the inquiry, to learn that Gigi had left China two years before, and, retiring from business with an immense fortune, had taken up his residence in Europe. In Holland, the broker thought, with the merchants of which country he had principally traded. Phileas Fogg returned to the hotel, begged a moment's conversation with Oda, and without more ado apprised her that Gigi was no longer at Hong Kong, but probably in Holland. Oda at first said nothing. She passed her hand across her forehead and reflected a few moments. Then, in her sweet, soft voice, she said, "'What ought I to do, Mr. Fogg?' "'It is very simple,' responded the gentleman. "'Go on to Europe.' "'But I cannot intrude.' "'You do not intrude, nor do you in the least embarrass my project. "'Passepartout, 
Monsieur, go to the Carnatic and engage three cabins. Passepartout, delighted that the young woman, who was very gracious to him, was going to continue the journey with them, went off at a brisk gait to obey his master's order. Chapter 19 In which Passepartout takes a too great interest in his master, and what comes of it. Hong Kong is an island which came into the possession of the English by the Treaty of Nankin after the War of 1842, and the colonizing genius of the English has created upon it an important city and an excellent port. The island is situated at the mouth of the Canton River, and is separated by about sixty miles from the Portuguese town of Macau, on the opposite coast. Hong Kong has beaten Macau in the struggle for the Chinese trade, and now the greater part of the transportation of Chinese goods finds its depot at the former place. Docks, hospitals, wharves, a Gothic cathedral, a government house, macadamized streets give to Hong Kong the appearance of a town in Kent or Surrey, transferred by some strange magic to the Antipodes. Passepartout wandered with his hands in his pockets towards the Victoria port, gazing as he went at the curious palanquins and the other modes of conveyance, and the groups of Chinese, Japanese, and Europeans who passed to and fro in the streets. Hong Kong seemed to him not unlike Bombay, Calcutta, and Singapore, since, like them, it betrayed everywhere the evidence of English supremacy. At the Victoria port he found a confused mass of ships of all nations, English, French, American, and Dutch men-of-war and trading vessels, Japanese and Chinese junks, sempers, tankers, and flower-boats, which formed so many floating parterres. Passepartout noticed in the crowd a number of the natives, who seemed very old and were dressed in yellow. On going into a barber's to get shaved, he learned that these ancient men were all at least eighty years old, at which age they are permitted to wear yellow, which is the imperial colour. Passepartout, without exactly knowing why, thought this very funny. On reaching the quay where they were to embark upon the Carnatic, he was not surprised to find Fix walking up and down. The detective seemed very much disappointed and disturbed. "'This is bad,' muttered Passepartout, for the gentlemen of the Reform Club. He accosted Fix with a merry smile, as if he had not perceived that gentleman's chagrin. The detective had, indeed, good reasons to inveigh against the bad luck which pursued him. The warrant had not come. It was certainly on the way, but as certainly it could not now reach Hong Kong for several days, and this being the last English territory on Mr. Fogg's route, the robber would escape, unless he could manage to detain him. "'Well, Monsieur Fix,' said Passepartout, "'have you decided to go with us as far as America?' "'Yes,' returned Fix through his set teeth. "'Ah, good!' exclaimed Passepartout, laughing heartily. "'I knew you could not persuade yourself to separate from us. Come and engage your berth.' They entered the steamer office and secured cabins for four persons. The clerk, as he gave them the tickets, informed them that, the repairs on the Carnatic having been completed, the steamer would leave that very evening, and not next morning, as had been announced. "'That will suit my master all the better,' said Passepartout. "'I will go and let him know.' Fix now decided to make a bold move. He resolved to tell Passepartout all. It seemed to be the only possible means of keeping Phileas Fogg several days longer at Hong Kong. He accordingly invited his companion into a tavern which caught his eye on the quay. On entering they found themselves in a large room handsomely decorated, at the end of which was a large camp-bed furnished with cushions. Several persons lay upon this bed in a deep sleep. 
At the small tables which were arranged about the room, some thirty customers were drinking English beer, porter, gin, and brandy, smoking the while long red clay pipes, stuffed with little bowls of opium mingled with the essence of rose. From time to time one of the smokers, overcome with the narcotic, would slip under the table, whereupon the waiters, taking him by the head and the feet, carried and laid him upon the bed. The bed already supported twenty of these stupefied sots. Fix and Passepartout saw they were in a smoking-house haunted by those wretched, cadaverous, idiotic creatures to whom the English merchants sell every year the miserable drug called opium, to the amount of one million four hundred thousand pounds, thousands devoted to one of the most despicable vices which afflict humanity. The Chinese government has in vain attempted to deal with the evil by stringent laws. It passed gradually from the rich, to whom it was at first exclusively reserved, to the lower classes and then its ravages could not be arrested. Opium is smoked everywhere, at all times, by men and women in the Celestial Empire, and once accustomed to it the victims cannot dispense with it, except by suffering horrible bodily contortions and agonies. A great smoker can smoke as many as eight pipes a day, but he dies in five years. It was in one of these dens that Fix and Passepartout, in search of a friendly glass, found themselves. Passepartout had no money, but willingly accepted Fix's invitation in the hope of returning the obligation at some future time. They ordered two bottles of port, to which the Frenchman did ample justice, whilst Fix observed him with close attention. They chatted about the journey, and Passepartout was especially merry at the idea that Fix was going to continue it with them. When the bottles were empty, however, he rose to go and tell his master of the change in the time of the sailing of the Carnatic. Fix caught him by the arm and said, "'Wait a moment.' "'What for, Mr. Fix?' "'I want to have a serious talk with you.' "'A serious talk?' cried Passepartout, drinking up the little wine that was left in the bottom of his glass. "'Well, we'll talk about it to-morrow. I haven't time now.' "'Stay. What I have to say concerns your master.' Passepartout, at this, looked attentively at his companion. Fix's face seemed to have a singular expression. He resumed his seat. "'What is it that you have to say?' Fix placed his hand upon Passepartout's arm, and, lowering his voice, said, "'You have guessed who I am.' "'Parbleu,' said Passepartout, smiling. "'Then I am going to tell you everything.' "'Now that I know everything, my friend, ah, that's very good. But go on, go on. First, though, let me tell you that those gentlemen have put themselves to a useless expense.' "'Useless?' said Fix. "'You speak confidently. It's clear that you don't know how large the sum is.' "'Of course I do,' returned Passepartout. Twenty thousand pounds.' Fifty-five thousand, answered Fix, pressing his companion's hand. "'What?' cried the Frenchman. "'Has Monsieur Fogg dared fifty-five thousand pounds? "'Well, there's all the more reason for not losing an instant,' he continued, getting up hastily. Fix pushed Passepartout back in his chair and resumed. Fifty-five thousand pounds, and if I succeed, I get two thousand pounds. "'If you'll help me—' I'll let you have five hundred of them. "'Help you?' cried Passepartout, whose eyes were standing wide open. "'Yes, help me keep Mr. Fogg here for two or three days.' "'Why, what are you saying? These gentlemen are not satisfied with following my master and suspecting his honour, but they must try to put obstacles in his way. I blush for them.' "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that it is a piece of shameful trickery.' They might as well waylay Mr. Fogg and put his money in their pockets. But 
that's just what we count on doing. It's a conspiracy, then, cried Passepartout, who became more and more excited as the liquor mounted in his head, for he drank without perceiving it. A real conspiracy, and gentlemen, too. Bah! Fix began to be puzzled. Members of the Reform Club, continued Passepartout, you must know, Monsieur Fix, that my master is an honest man, and that when he makes a wager he tries to win it fairly. But who do you think I am? asked Fix, looking at him intently. Parbleu! An agent of the member of the Reform Club sent out here to interrupt my master's journey. But though I found you out some time ago, I have taken good care to say nothing about it to Mr. Fogg. He knows nothing, then? Nothing, replied Passepartout, again emptying his glass. The detective passed his hand across his forehead, hesitating before he spoke again. What should he do? Passepartout's mistake seemed sincere, but it made his design more difficult. It was evident that the servant was not the master's accomplice, as Fix had been inclined to suspect. Well, said the detective to himself, as he is not an accomplice, he will help me. But he had no time to lose. Fogg must be detained at Hong Kong, so he resolved to make a clean breast of it. Listen to me, said Fix abruptly. I am not, as you think, an agent of the members of the Reform Club. Bah! retorted Passepartout with an air of raillery. I am a police detective, sent out here by the London office. You? A detective? I will prove it. Here is my commission. Passepartout was speechless with astonishment when Fix displayed this document, the genuineness of which could not be doubted. Mr. Fogg's wager, resumed Fix, is only a pretext of which you and the gentlemen of the Reform are dupes. He had a motive for securing your innocent complicity. But why? Listen, on the 28th of last September a robbery of £55,000 was committed at the Bank of England by a person whose description was fortunately secured. Here is his description. It answers exactly to that of Mr. Phileas Fogg. What nonsense! cried Passepartout, striking the table with his fist. My master is the most honourable of men. How can you tell? You know scarcely anything about him. You went into his service the day he came away. He came away on a foolish pretext, without trunks and carrying a large amount in banknotes. And yet you are bold enough to assert that he is an honest man? Yes, yes, repeated the poor fellow mechanically. Would you like to be treated as his accomplice? Passepartout, overcome by what he had heard, held his head between his hands, and did not dare look at the detective. Phileas Fogg, the saviour of Aouda, that brave and generous man, a robber? And yet how many presumptions there were against him! Passepartout essayed to reject the suspicions which forced themselves upon his mind. He did not wish to believe that his master was guilty. Well, what do you want of me? said he at last, with effort. See here, replied Fix, I have tracked Mr. Fogg to this place, but as yet I have failed to receive the warrant of arrest for which I sent to London. You must help me keep him here in Hong Kong. Aye, but I, I will share with you the two thousand pound reward offered by the Bank of England. Never, replied Passepartout, who tried to rise, but fell back, exhausted in mind and body. Mr. Fix, he stammered, even should what you say be true, if my master is really the robber you are seeking for, which I deny, I have been, am, in his service, I have seen his generosity and goodness, I will never betray him, not for all the gold in the world. I come from a village where they don't eat that kind of bread. 
You refuse? I refuse. Consider that I've said nothing, said Fix, and let us drink. Yes, let us drink. Passepartout found himself yielding more and more to the effects of the liquor. Fix, seeing that he must at all hazards be separated from his master, wished to entirely overcome him. Some pipes full of opium lay upon the table. Fix slipped one into Passepartout's hand. He took it, put it between his lips, lit it, drew several puffs on his head, becoming heavy under the influence of the narcotic, fell upon the table. "'At last!' said Fix, seeing Passepartout unconscious. "'Mr. Fogg will not be informed of the Carnatic's departure, and if he is, he will have to go without this cursed Frenchman.' And after paying his bill, Fix left the town. End of chapter 19 Recorded on the 29th of November, 2007, in Nottingham, England, by alexfoster.me.uk for LibriVox.org.